Thanks for watching this video from Cherry Hills Church. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here. So glad we can gather. You've heard that, but it, it really is significant that we can do this together. There's, uh, there's quite a few days after school where our youngest son says, Mom, can I go to Target? We have to drive by there. Mom, can I stop at Target? To which she replies, uh, why do you need to go to Target? And he says, I need to buy something. To which she replies, why do you need to buy something? And he says, because I have money. I need something. I need something. Now, it's kind of funny when we're talking about a six-year-old But it's not so funny when as students or adults, we make decisions based on what we think we need. And in some situations, confusing needs versus wants or desires can derail our lives. And just so we're on the same page, if you're following in your notes, a need, I want to define this for us. A need is to require something because it's essential It is essential or very important. Right off the bat, there's very few needs in life. Air, water, food, shelter. We require it. It is essential. And then if you're following in your notes, we have wants or desires, which are strong feelings of wanting something or to do something. It's a strong feeling. And those definitions make things pretty clear. And in our minds, we know the difference. We know the difference. The problem is that we run into real life. And what I've noticed about myself, and I'm guessing all of us here have done this, we confuse wants, desires, and needs. We, we can become so focused on our desires that they even begin to feel critical to our well-being. We just convince ourselves they're critical. We need them. They're essential. Sometimes it's material things, right? We need the car. We need the house. We need the trip. I need those things. And we make unwise financial decisions based on confusing a need with a desire, Or it could be a relationship, right? How many of us have made mistakes in relationships because we thought we needed that other person? Or it could be a certain outcome of a situation. We need things to go a certain way. It could be any number of things. And this is important to be able to distinguish between a desire and a need because as followers of Jesus, a couple things happen when we confuse the two. One, when God doesn't meet our need, when he doesn't meet our perceived need that is really a desire, we get angry or frustrated at him. And we can even lose our faith because God didn't provide the way we wanted him to. I can't tell you how many people I talk to that are struggling with God because he didn't meet their need the way they wanted him to. And I can't tell you the second thing, this happens all the time when we confuse needs and wants. When we get what we think we need, it lets us down. 
It leaves us feeling empty because whatever it was that we thought we needed, it didn't deliver on what it promised. Satisfaction, happiness, fulfillment. Let's us down. What is that for you? What is it for you? What are those things in life that you would label needs, but they're really wants or desires? We're going to come back to that in a few minutes, but I want you to start thinking about that. What is it? Where is the confusion for you? We're in a series in the gospel of Mark called the way of Jesus. And if you're following on your notes, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. And today, we, we come to a famous passage of scripture that captures this idea of what we think we want versus what we really need. And if you're following in your notes, in this story, Jesus reminds us of our greatest need. And I'm praying, my prayer, when we leave here today, we will be reoriented to live the way of Jesus, recognizing our greatest need. I'm just praying this message reorients us, gives us new perspective. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter two. We have made it through chapter one after one month. So open to chapter two. It's about three fourths of the way back in your Bible. Mark is the second gospel. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. I want to encourage you to take one of those out. This is such a great passage it would do you well to have God's word in front of you to circle things and write things that could be found on page 813 of those Bibles, 813. If you don't have a black Bible or if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those home with you. Now, what we've seen in the, the first chapter, the first month of the series is that Jesus is traveling around Galilee, teaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And through miracles, Jesus has proven his authority over sickness and evil spirits and the kingdom of Satan. Jesus is the king that has arrived to usher in his kingdom. And we pick up today in chapter two, verse one. You can follow along on the screen. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. So as a reminder, just so we have our bearings, I'll put a map on the screen for you. Capernaum is a town in a region called Galilee. Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus spent most of his time. Capernaum is his home base. And after being gone a while in all these villages and towns in Galilee, teaching and healing, he's come home. So they're in Capernaum, probably at Peter's house. That's where he lived. And Mark tells us that the crowds have gathered again and they have filled the house and they're pouring out into the streets to try to hear Jesus teach the good news and to see him heal. And it's into that chaotic, crowded scene that we read in verses three to four, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was laying on. So this is probably a a two-story house, had an outside stairway leading up to the house's flat roof. 
And the typical roof of the day consisted of about a foot of earth. They would just pack mud and clay and hay together. On top of this earth would be some tiles to keep water out. All told, the roof was probably about two feet thick. And if we're still imagining that we're in this hot, crowded space, all of a sudden you look up and you hear shoveling. That would startle us right now if that began to happen, right? You hear shoveling and then debris begins falling and then a crack of light would emerge that continued to get bigger and bigger until a man was lowered through the roof right in front of Jesus. Would you read verse five in the first gray box on your notes to see what happens next? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And I wonder, let's just stay in that moment, that moment. I just wonder if the guy thought, hey, thanks, Jesus, but I have a more immediate need. I just can't get past this idea that if Jesus said to the man, what do you want? That he would have answered, I want to walk. I want to walk. It's just human, right? Think about this for a minute. If we went to the doctor with a serious condition, cancer, diabetes, mental health, paralysis, and the doctor looks at us and says, your sins are forgiven. We'd be taken aback for many reasons, right? Because the guy's not, guy or gal isn't God, but primarily because we went to the doctor in the first place for medical treatment, just like this man was brought to Jesus for healing. And Jesus, by forgiving this man's sin first, he's saying something like, you think you know what your main problem in life is. Look, I, I know you have problems. I know they're suffering and I'm going to get to that. But you need to realize the main problem in your life is not your suffering, it's your sin. If you're following in your notes, the paralyzed man's most immediate problem, his most immediate need was not his paralysis. It was his separation from God. And it's our greatest problem. Sin is our greatest problem. It's this internal disease that all of us have been infected with. And in this sin problem, it shatters relationships. It causes us to think foolishly, make bad choices. It moves us to act in evil and destructive ways. And most of all, sin renders us spiritually dead and separated from God. And if left unforgiven, it results in eternal death separated from God. But the good news that Jesus would proclaim is that while we were still sinners, God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, die the death we deserve, and take our sin upon himself and rise on the third day, defeating sin and death. And those who turn to him And trust in what he did on the cross. You are forgiven. 
You are healed of this disease called sin. You are a new creation with a new heart and filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus, and you are no longer separated from God. You have been made right with him. And that's why if you're following in your notes, the healing of the forgiveness of sin is God's greatest gift because it meets our greatest need more than the air we breathe. We need the forgiveness of sin because of its eternal significance. And so we all know what this forgiveness means. If you're following on your notes, forgiveness, it means to leave, to let go, to send away from, to put away. When we are forgiven in God's eyes, it is as if we have never sinned. We are healed spiritually when we're forgiven. Friends, we have one most immediate need. And Jesus, by addressing the spiritual healing before the physical healing, makes this crystal clear. But let me address one thing real quick. It may be going through your mind right now. Did you notice the guy himself did not ask for forgiveness, right? I've heard this taught that it was the faith of his friends that saved the guy. The only problem with that is we don't see that anywhere else in scripture. It's not the faith of someone else that saves us. It's our own acknowledgement of sin and our own trusting in Jesus as savior. So, so if everywhere else in scripture, it's taught that it's personal faith that saves, there must be something else going on here because Mark is not contradicting the rest of the Bible. And we're going to see in a moment that Jesus can read the minds of the teachers of the law. And I believe Jesus could read the motives of this man's heart. And there must have been some heart desire for mercy and grace. And I wonder if it's tied to his paralysis. This man had probably been told his entire life that he was paralyzed because of something he had done wrong. Right? It was a punishment from God for sinning. That was the belief of the day. And maybe he was thinking that if he could just be forgiven, then he would be healed physically as well. We don't know. There's some mystery here, but the paralyzed man came with an openness that Jesus could give him what he needed, even if he didn't realize the full extent of what he needed. I read one author this week that wrote this, and I just love this. He wrote, Jesus is so eager to pour out his grace on us. I'm going to read that again. Jesus is so eager to pour out his grace on us, to embrace us and receive us and pardon us. He even responds to fragmentary, imperfect expressions of dependence and need in our heart that aren't even expressed. Isn't that beautiful? And we know it's true. There's something in us that comes alive when we hear that because in some way, this is how we all came to Jesus. Imperfectly and in part with a need that only he could fill. Jesus met this man's most immediate need and he meets our most immediate need in the forgiveness of sin. So all of that has happened. And in this crowded house, The man's in front of Jesus. Jesus has just spoken forgiveness over him. And then in verse six, we read, 
Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And it's right here that Mark introduces us for the first time to a group of people that will show up repeatedly in the life of Jesus. In verse 6, they're called teachers of the law. In other places, they're called Pharisees, scribes, religious leaders. These were the guys who were the most studied, most religious, most important in all of Jewish society. And they thought their own goodness was so impressive that it could not fail to make them acceptable to God. They loved God. They wanted to honor him. But in some weird way, I think this group knew they needed God's forgiveness, but maybe just not as much as other people did. And they believed what they needed most, what they needed most, was a righteousness that they could earn by doing good things. But, Before we completely bash the teachers of the law, many of us have had the same thoughts they have, right? I don't need quite as much forgiveness as them. They're really bad. Or if I just do a little bit more, God will love me more and accept me more. It's an easy temptation we all fall into. So these religious leaders hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And they begin to think to themselves, this dude is blaspheming God because only God can forgive sins. Blaspheme just means to insult the honor of God. And the penalty in Jewish society could be death. And what was going on in their minds was this. They recognized that the proclamation of forgiveness was not a passing comment. It wasn't a passing comment. It was a declaration of deity. Jesus, by forgiving the man, is claiming to be God, and they know it. They know he's not just claiming to be a miracle worker. He's claiming to be the Lord of the universe. And in their minds, there is no way that this Jesus who touches unclean people and who eats with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes could ever be God. And I think there's a progression going on in the gospel of Mark. I'm sure these same teachers of the law, they had either heard about Jesus or some of them had seen him in Galilee teach and heal his and display his authority over sickness and death. Now Mark, in a progression, wants them to know and us to know that if you're following in your notes by forgiving the man, Jesus claims to be God and have authority over sin. Authority over sickness, authority over evil spirits, authority over the kingdom of Satan, authority to forgive sin. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he addressed them in verses 8 to 12. You can follow along on the screen, and then we'll read verses 10 and 11 together. It says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up your mat and walk. Then would you read this with me in the second grade box on your notes? But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. 
And that finishes by saying he got up, he took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. Jesus asked these religious leaders a question, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? We asked this question uh, to our family. We're, we're walking through at dinnertime some nights, the Bible study that accompanies uh, the series that Steve wrote. And we asked this question, which is easier and which is harder? And one of our boys, without missing a beat, he just said the forgiveness of sin is harder because it's inside. And that answer was so simple. And it had just kind of escaped me. And it's so true. It's easier to deal with a cut on our skin than an infection in our body. And what Jesus does in healing this paralyzed man, we can't miss this. He enables the hard thing, the external healing. Having the paralyzed man get up and walk. He enables the hard thing in in order to show the even harder thing the forgiveness of sin, the internal healing. And in order to know that he could forgive sin, which they could not see, he did what they could see by healing sin's symptoms. And I think Jesus is giving us a picture here. He was giving the religious leaders a picture. If you're following in your notes, the man's physical healing is a picture of our spiritual healing. It's a picture of the restoration of something that was once dead being brought back to life. It's a beautiful picture. And also notice in this interaction with the teachers of the law, Jesus calls himself the son of man for the first time here in the gospel of Mark. It's one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. It's used 83 times in the four gospels. It is a majestic title taken from the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. We can see this on the screen. These are the words of Daniel. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. By proclaiming the forgiveness of sin and then appropriating the title Son of Man for himself, Jesus is throwing down. He is throwing down. What he's saying, if you're following in your notes, that he is the one who will come to establish God's kingdom. He's the one they've been waiting for. He's the one. And Mark shows this again and again. We've seen this week after week. Jesus is the king who has come to usher in his kingdom. And he's just clearly saying it right here. I'm the one you've been waiting for. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus teaches that this kingdom is now here in part and one day will be here in full. Life in the kingdom begins now and we're gonna talk about that in just a second. But it extends into eternity and that's why Jesus healed the paralyzed man spiritually before he healed him physically. Because if you're following in your notes, forgiveness is our greatest need. 
because it determines where we spend eternity. It determines what kingdom we belong to, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. And all of us belong to one or the other. But we frequently think about the not yet. And we forget about that this new kingdom right now, it is here in part, and that Jesus changes lives right now. In this kingdom, there is freedom from shame, from guilt, from fear. There is healing, release from bondage and addiction, and there is victory over evil spirits. It's a kingdom where people can know his peace in the midst of pain. They can know his joy in the midst of discouragement. They can know his hope in the midst of despair, and they can know his love in the midst of loneliness. And the cost of admission to this kingdom is the forgiveness of sin, which is a free gift offered to everyone. So today, today, if if you've been trying to fill your life with things that leave you empty, if you have been trying to meet your needs, but there is no satisfaction, it's because a relationship with Jesus is the only thing that can meet your most immediate need and provide eternal satisfaction. Today can be the day you experience the forgiveness of God. I asked a friend of mine in the church this week to tell me his story of forgiveness and recognizing that only Jesus could fulfill what he needed. He said this, listen to his words. I just want to read them over you. He said, I fell headlong into wanting the world and that led me into alcohol, drugs, sexual immorality, abortion, divorce, broken families, and a lot of damage to others and, of course, me. In the summer of 2015, after 30 years that was the wreckage of my life and a lot of other lives, I was 48 years old and I had not been to church since I was 17. And it was only God that brought to mind that I needed to go to church. So on September 20th, 2015, I sat in the last row And I was under such conviction that God was breaking my heart for the life I lived. The series was in Ephesians, and by the third or fourth week at church, the message was taking off the old and putting on the new self. And I asked Jesus to forgive me, and at that moment, I gave my life to Jesus. God radically changed my life, and I am living proof of the promise of God that no one has gone too far down the road to be forgiven and saved. And I can tell you, this guy is not perfect, but he wants to give himself fully to Jesus and his mission, and he invites others into the kingdom that changed his life and fulfilled his greatest need. I want you to know if you're here today and you resonate with that story, today your past can be forgiven and your present and future can find a new purpose. Jesus can meet your most immediate need. And what I've discovered about myself, this this message of the good news of forgiveness, meeting our greatest need, it's not just for those who don't know Jesus yet. As a follower of Jesus for a number of years, I'm not immune to desiring things and thinking that I need other things more than I desire Jesus. Friends, this is a daily battle for me. I'd love to stand here 
and tell you that as a pastor, I don't struggle with this or I don't wrestle with it. I'm immune to this. I'm like Teflon to this. But I'd be lying to you. You may have something that comes to mind immediately and you can name your struggle with confusing desires and needs. But if it's hard for you to nail down, what you're confusing. I've learned how to identify a want or a desire that's elevated to a need. And I want to share two things with you that have been incredibly helpful to me. When I start thinking that whatever it is I think I need will provide satisfaction, fulfillment, significance, or safety, right? Rather than finding my identity in Jesus, like Steve talked about a couple weeks ago, I find my identity in what I value, And my value and what I think I need, how I feel about myself is directly tied to what I think I need, right? For example, I noticed that I need my kids to get along, so I feel like I'm a success as a parent. Obviously, that's an unrealistic expectation, but when I elevate that to a need instead of a desire, it can be a desire, it's a good desire, But when I elevate it to a need, I'll parent in a way that is not the way of Jesus in order to accomplish my need. Does that make sense? I believe that something will meet a need that only Jesus can satisfy. And two, if I am finding myself anxious or nervous or fearful or ashamed, these are warnings that I've elevated something to a need. Right? Another example I notice about myself that if I have to have a difficult conversation, I get anxious. And when I peel that back, it's because I need that conversation to go a certain way, or I need that person to like me and they may not like me when that conversation is over, right? Feelings are like dashboard lights that we need to pay attention to because they alert us when we're giving more weight to our perceived need than we are trusting God. We all have things in our lives that fall into the category of wants and needs and desires. So whether you are considering following Jesus today or you're a follower of Jesus and this is a daily struggle, I want to leave you with a question. If you're following on your notes, do I desire anything more than Jesus Do I desire anything more than Jesus? And before you put your notes away, I just want you to add another question to that. Out to the side, just write the word why. Why do I desire that? Why do I think I need that more than Jesus? Why, what what do I believe will provide fulfillment and satisfaction in life? Maybe another way to ask it is, what am I trusting in more than Jesus? You know, and I, I said this, and I, I, I crossed this out last night, and the Lord just keeps prompting me to say this. We, we've talked about those who don't know Jesus, and you can find forgiveness today. And we've talked about those who follow Jesus, yet it's a daily struggle. But I, I just want to address this because the Lord keeps bringing it up. You are here today, or you are watching online, and you call yourself a Christian but you don't desire Jesus and your life doesn't look any different than those around you in the world. Don't be fooled. This can be the day where you step out to follow Jesus and allow him to be the Lord 
of your life. This can be the day where you yield to Jesus. We're going to give you several minutes to pray about this. We, we want to be people who think deeply about our faith. And that's why we try to respond to God's word each week by giving you time to consider what he's saying to you. The Bible says this. The Bible says, if we hear the word of God, but we just keep on going about our everyday life, then we're like someone who looks in a mirror and forgets our own reflection. And this is why spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus, how to live the way of Jesus is so important because we want to be people who give ourselves fully to him and his mission of making disciples. Spending time with Jesus orients us. We talked about that reorienting. It orients us to what is true. And it gives us perspective that we've elevated something ahead of Jesus. And we want to be a people who listen and respond to the promptings of God. So we're going to give you just the next few minutes, a gift of quiet. I want you to wrestle with those two questions. Do I desire anything more than Jesus and why? Name reality, confess that, and then ask God that he would be your greatest desire. Ask him that. That's a prayer he'll answer. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like more information, visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. 